Are we recording, Susan? Yes. Okay, everyone. Welcome to February 15th uh, Wednesday seminar. Uh, if you're at home, turn off your cameras and your mics. Uh, and we really have very little announcements today. I think we're past the workshop season. Uh, the only thing is, uh, we are. There's a very high chance that we are moving Dave Schwartz's uh, talk next Wednesday for scheduling reasons. But so for now, probably plan on that being canceled. Um, and then we'll, it's to, to be announced when it's going to be. And I think that's it. So with that, I'm going to pass it to Sarah McBride to introduce the speaker today. Good morning, everyone. It's my great pleasure to introduce Dr. Beth Reddy. Uh, Beth has been my co-author several times over now, right, Beth? Uh, we've worked together on a number of projects, particularly when it relates to ShakeAlert, the earthquake early warning system for the West Coast United States. Um, Beth is a anthropologist. Uh, she got her PhD at UC Irvine in anthropology. She currently is an assistant professor at the Colorado School of Mines. And I think what's really, um, Beth is really a trailblazer in my mind. Uh, I love to follow her work. And one of the really unique things about her is she's a assistant professor in engineering design and society at Colorado School of Mines, but she also holds a joint appointment with geophysics, which makes her really unique in this space. Um, Beth's specialties include uh, qualitative, quantitative, uh, quantitative and archival methodologies to develop insights on how we understand and live with risk and mis risk mitigation technologies. Um, Beth has a book coming out shortly, uh, which she's going to talk about, I think, uh, with this presentation. And um, if you haven't heard of Beth's work, I highly recommend it. She is one of my go-to social scientists. When I'm stumped with a problem, I take it to Beth and we have a great conversation about it. So thank you, Beth, so much for uh, joining us with the seminar. I'm sorry I couldn't be there in person. You know, I wish I could be. Um, but yes, thank you so much for being here today. Oh my goodness. Thank you so much, Sarah. I wish you could be here today, but that was a really kind introduction. Um, and thank you also to, to Max Schneider, who's been bringing me around, um, to, to Evan to help for helping get set up, and for all sorts of people here um, for, for coming. Um, so let me figure out if I can share my screen. Yay. Yay. Okay, here we go. Um, so the book is called Alerta Engineering on Shaky Ground because I was writing about earthquake early warning in Mexico and because, and I think this makes a difference in ways that y'all are maybe aware of, but if, if you aren't like intimately aware of it, you'll totally, it'll totally make sense if you think about it. It matters that it's engineers who are designing and implementing earthquake early warning in Mexico. That has certain kinds of consequences for the decisions they're making, the ways that the, um, the tool develops um, and that, that like might play out in different ways if they were um, geophysicists in charge, right? Um, so uh, yeah, I am, I'm at Colorado School of Mines. Um, I'm the Associate Director of the Humanitarian Engineering and Science Program. That's kind of what we call this interdisciplinary um, master's program we've, we've put together. Um, and I hold appointments in Engineering Design Society and Geophysics um, because they're, they're very, very cool. Um, so I am really interested in, oh, okay, we're gonna do that, huh? There we go. And how people 
live with um, with earthquakes and with risk mitigation technology. Um, I like to kind of step back and define earthquake early warning, not in terms of its specific mechanics, but as a technological attempt to essentially change how people or the systems we make um, can experience earthquakes. Right, like broadly speaking, all sorts of earthquake early warning is seeking to to do that, um, and that has certain kinds of implications, right? In this talk, um, so I'm going to introduce the the book, and I'm going to talk about a chapter in which I I sort of lay out um, qualitatively some um, ordinary experiences of of human life with ongoing earthquakes and earthquake early warnings um, to make a case that we need to pay attention to that as we think about earthquake early warning and the success of our specific kinds of earthquake early warning system uses and, uh, and goals. Um, so broadly um, in the book, I'll just let you know, I talk about the historical development that includes funding and politics, support, debates of, um, Earthquake early warning in Mexico, of it, which is the oldest public earthquake early warning system in the world. Um, and I, I kind of take uh, folks through from the um, from the 85 quake to their original 12 station operation um, as it as it developed and, and, and grew through the country um, until uh, sort of it's a. It went live in 80 in 91 um, and, and really pay attention to the people who designed, build, continue to build and, and advocate for earthquake early warning. Um, and I do this from the, the kind of theoretical perspective of, of anthropology. So it's not just a, a we're not talking about necessarily a Wikipedia entry. Right. Although I do have some really interesting kinds of historical um, historical points and developments. Instead, I'm kind of asking all right, because I'm an anthropologist, we're interested in this. How do people make sense of technology, environmental hazards like earthquakes, and, and human beings, like the ways we interact? So that's a, my big picture question, and that's kind of what guides me through um, this story of risk mitigation, technology development. And um, so, yeah, um, the broadly... Um, and developing these these findings, I was working on this for like a dozen years um, that included like formal interviews. I did a survey. I did oral histories with folks, but I also did what we call participant observation. That means I just spent time in Mexico with um, with specifically the, the engineers and technologists who are behind earthquake early warning there. That's the folks at CIRES, the Center for Instrumentation and Seismic Registry, um, as well as some folks in um, civil protection um, and I and people at schools, just people doing drills, people at conferences to kind of see how earthquake early warning in Mexico had been designed and how it grew. Um, I also did you know, extensive reviews of popular press, reports, scholarly publications um, over this time to kind of see if, to kind of get a better picture of this technology as a social phenomenon. So today, 
I'm going to, that was my introductory spiel. Today, I'm going to talk a little bit about earthquakes in Mexico to kind of set the scene. I'm going to bring you through an autoethnographic um, recitation of an actual alert experience. And I'm going to tell you why that kind of qualitative work matters and why it shouldn't be treated as just like an anecdote, which it could be, right? But instead, I'm going to make sense of it in terms of this larger project. Um, I'm going to talk a little bit more about instrumentation and advocacy in Mexico um, in ways that I think may ring familiar for some of you here, maybe not, maybe yes, um, and open up some questions about what success means in earthquake early warning um, before finally um, stepping back and considering our disciplines. And I'll invite you to ask questions if you like throughout, make comments, um, or save them for the end, I will ask. So that's the plan. Sound okay? All right. And eventually, oh yeah, and, and keep tuned in until the end because that's when you get to see the beautiful book cover. <laughs> so Mexico is a really, really seismic nation. It's a really, really seismic place. Y'all are aware of this. Um, this is a global seismic hazard map from OpenQuake Map Viewer um, that kind of lets you know about um, peak ground acceleration with a 10% probability of being exceeded in 50 years. This is not my field, so I'm going to ask you to ask other seismologists, real <laughs> seismologists, questions about this if you need to. Um, but this is setting the stage. You can see that the when we think about seismicity in Mexico, we're often thinking about up um, up kind of north in around around Baja, and we're also kind of paying attention specifically to that uh, Pacific coast, right? With some exceptions. And that, but that's really, if you look at the 97 sensors of SASMEX, that's really what we've been thinking about. Um, we're expecting there to be seismic activity that we might want to detect, we might want to, um, to monitor along the Pacific coast, and that's kind of the Southern Pacific coast, um, with consequences for major cities that are still kind of in the, in South Central Mexico. And this is a map of the, um, of SASMEX, the um, Sistema Alerta Sismica Mexicana, um, as it stands today. It's got 97 sensors. It's got six user communities with their alerting threshold set differently, um, depending on where they are and depending on the, the city user community, like the city government choices. Um, and this is the system that CIRES, the um, Center for Instrumentation Seismic Registry, which is an NGO, this is the system they oversee. This is the public earthquake early warning system. And this is where they're based. So Mexico City is not a, on, in, on the coast of Mexico. Right. Um, but it is a remarkably seismically sensitive place, as I'm sure some of you are aware. There are 22 million people who live here. And because of a complicated history of agricultural possibility and conquest, it is an incredibly dangerous place. Um, it has been described to me as a shot glass full of jello on a table. Have you all heard that one before? 
Yeah, it's a good description, though, so I'm borrowing it. I didn't come up with it. And and the reason is this, right? Um, historically, before conquest, um, it was a, a, a system of, like, people were settled in a system of cities on a system of lakes in this um, in this super volcanic region. So, um, and when, conqu after conquest, the conquistadors, the Spaniards began to drain these lakes and, and made their, well, their first um, American New Spain capital, which later moved, but they made a, a, a central um, center of activity on top of the old, what we call the Aztec empires, right? It was a very political move to start immediately draining that, those lakes, that system of lakes and changing that way of life. And so they did, right? And they built. And now um, you can see this map over here. I've got the outline of, of Mexico City, which yeah, Mexico City um, does not constrain all the people in, in the Mexico City regional area, but it's, it's good to take a look at it over top of the old lakes. Those have been drained and continue to be drained. The Secadora is ongoing. Um, and, th but they've, and they've left this mark on Mexican seismic conditions because Mexico City, um, city center, you know, where all the government buildings are for the, the nation, where a lot of headquarters for really important um, companies where the economic centers of the nation are in that lake zone. Super, super um, subject to, to seismic activity. Uh, La Condesa, this neighborhood that I spend a lot of time in, I'll be talking a little bit about it later, um, in the lake zone, kind of in a transition zone. Um, Navarte, La Navarte, where, a neighborhood where um, this NGO that runs earthquake early warning in Mexico writ large is based in the lake zone. Um, Benito Juarez Airport, the major international airport for Mexico City in the lake zone. Um, now, UNAM, the major university that I'm sure you know, um, in uh, what we call the hill zone here or on top of lava flow. It makes it a little bit more solid. But Mexico City is not just incredibly seismically sensitive because of all this history and all this like geology, um, these soils, but also it's incredibly politically important in Mexico. It's a, the center of, of learning and of culture, like culture in the capital C sense that anthropologists don't like to talk about, the arts, um, the universities and, and leadership. It's become a place we, we, we think about earthquakes for. And really earthquake early warning began in Mexico began to be designed for this place. So I wanna um, lead you through, as promised, an alerting event. So I hope that you can hear this team. And if you, if, and I hope that it isn't too loud for you. I'm just gonna turn this on. Oop, no, maybe I won't. And now it's getting feedback, so I'll mute it again. Um, okay, so let me lead you through 
and experience an alert that had. This is Plaza Popocatépetl. It's in um, La Condesa in Mexico City. It's this beautiful tree-lined um, community. Um, so 11.44 p.m., September 29th, 2015. That siren went off. Here's what happened. I was, I had been, it's, it's, 2015, right? I've been I've been studying earthquake early warning for a minute since 2011. I was staying at my friend's house, second floor. Um, we would say second floor in, in the U.S. They would say first floor. Um, I was staying at my friend's house. I am their couch is made into a guest bed, kind of lying on my back. Got my computer on my chest, sort of glasses on, sort of dozing off. It starts going off, and I think. Okay, it's happening. It's happening to me finally, right? I've been studying earthquake early warning since 2011 officially, and it's happening. And so I get up, and the the wow, 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 wow continues to go on. And I look around, and I'm like, okay, those are high heeled shoes. I do not want those. <laughs> and I shove my shoes, my feet into like one boot, and then I'm like, where's the other boot? My <laughs> luggage is exploding. Right? I grab my wallet. I'm like, okay, I'm a graduate student though. So I'm like, have I backed up my data? <laughs> like, what's more important, my life or my dissertation? And I'm like, okay, okay, got that. And I'm like, oh, I can't quite. I, I grab my computer. Oh, but like, is my, I think I left my passport in my bag. And I'm like, okay, never mind. It's fine. It's fine. We're doing this. Get to the door. Alert is still going off. Wow, 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 wow. Alert that sees me. God, alert that sees me. God, wow, wow, right? I meet my friends who are close enough to me to let me stay in their house, right? They know a couple things. Um, they have one of them, my friend Becca, who I call Becca in this by by her request, I will say, um, has this amazing bathrobe on it's got feathers it's very silly and i think she knows it's very silly she's given me dispensation to make fun of her in public for this especially because i'm not using her real name right so she's there and she's got a silly bathrobe and she's got slippers she's got two dogs one under each arm and they're like little little moppy guys they're like about this big one of them is a little bit cranky about this because she's a lady um the other one will do whatever because he doesn't care um so she's there she's got the dogs her husband, who I call Enrique here, he's he's also on his way. He is still dressed because he's like an Internet, you know, like a, an Internet nighttime person. Right. Like, you know, he's, he's a big nerd. So he also he comes to the he comes to the door, too. And we're like, OK, do we have everything? Do we have everything? And we step out onto the, the, the foyer of their steps, which are like marble and kind of slippery and dangerous. And they slip around because we think, OK, we've got a little time. And the earthquake early warning stops. And we're like, shit. We did this wrong. <laughs> we definitely did this wrong. We know better than this. And so so Becca and Enrique look at me and I look at them. And Becca's like, well, I'm tired. I'm going back in. Bye. Here are the keys. You can come back. Go outside and talk to people I know you want to <laughs> later. <laughs> and that's what I do. And so this is a picture of um, of the this beautiful central plaza um, that was taken during the day. So you can kind of see it, but it's black and white. So you, you get it. Um, so I go outside and I start talking to people. And there is 
Like there are all sorts out there, even though this is kind of a residential area. It's also kind of like a hip happening. Oh, my God, I'm so old. I'm like, they're hip and happening. But you know what I mean, right? There there are like people around. There's one lady there and she's in like full pajamas, like the matching set. It's very cute. And she's like, what just happened? Um, There's one person, one lady there who's wearing like a short party dress. And she's like, I think I felt something. But also and we, we start talking. Right. And we start saying, did you feel anything? And somebody says. Maybe you can see the ripples in the fountain. And somebody else says, yeah, but it's, maybe it's the breeze. OK, so. Um, here is here's what happened. There was, according to the Mexican Seismic Network, there was a magnitude 4.6 earthquake about 49 kilometers northeast of Ometapec, Guerrero. Now, Mexico City has set its own early warning thresholds, like I think a lot of cities want to do. They offer preventative warnings between about magnitude five, magnitude five and magnitude six um, quakes. And those are quakes coming from anywhere. We can talk a little bit more about that. Um, that means like special places, places that are designated, really um, important, get those warnings. Uh, public warnings, the kind that a siren would blare, are meant to go off over at magnitude six and over. That is not what happened. This was a 4.6. So this should be kind of below the threshold, even of preventative warnings. That's yes. the alert you're talking about, though, did go off on a siren. Mm-hmm. Yes, it did. Thank you for yeah. Um, it did. It went off because that sort of thing happens. And I can tell you a little bit more, and I will in a bit about why they've they've kind of chosen to to do that. Um, there were responses. <laughs> Some of y'all speak Spanish. <laughs> That's rude. <laughs> So that's a little picture of a, a a kid. It's a it's one of the many delightful memes that I collected that night and later. Um, of course, it's tweeted at SkyAlert and the X. Do you know SkyAlert? They're um they're a private company that does re like they they do some early warning with their now with their um with their own resources, but at that point they were just kind of rebroadcasting. The earthquake early warning from um, CIRES, from Sistema Alerta Sismica Mexicana. Um, and I, I wanted to show you this and tell you about this altogether. Um, geez, kind of because it paints a picture, right? So a, a warning went off on a siren that, um, that was below the threshold of even something that should be a, a preventative warning. And people uh, and people thought they felt it. People evacuated. Some of us did it really poorly. Some of us did it better. Um, some of us weren't really sure what to do. Um, and and we can talk about official guidance too. In Mexico, we like officially we tend to say if you're on like a, a low floor, probably try to evacuate. If you're on a higher floor, you could drop cover and hold on. Um, and and people tried to make sense of it. And later there was there were all sorts of news articles flowing back and forth. Was this a 
Was this a false alert? Was it a missed alert? Was it an error? Whose responsibility was it? And you can see in the um, even in this tweet, this person is tweeting a, you know, somebody who like an organization that really at this point just did rebroadcasting. Um, there's there's kind of questions about responsibility there. Now, I like to I'm going to lay this out for for y'all because I know that um, not a lot of you are qualitative social scientists. The reason that I share my experience, which I which I documented systematically um, as soon as I got in the house um, or back in back into the the, the my friend's flat. Um, and, and the reason I tell you about this is to point out that when we're thinking about earthquake early warning, we might be thinking about, OK, how exactly are our connections? What are our algorithms like? How can we make sure that. Um, that the that the right signals happen. And those are really important questions to ask, right? Like we need to ask questions about like um what whether alerts go off when they're supposed to, um, and 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 what happens. But like the experience of an earthquake early warning is bigger than that. Um, it's bigger than one event, it's about a series of events, it's going to involve people that do things right and don't do things right. And it's going to involve occasionally things that happen that maybe aren't ideal. Right. Um, systematically, the Mexican um, the Mexican team has chosen to emphasize speed on alerting over precision and accuracy. Right. So it is possible that. Yeah, they didn't just this 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 uh, sort of like low level event becoming an, uh, a warning isn't because they're bad engineers, right? It is because they have made a series of choices and sometimes things happen. And like the the question of for for them, like when I interviewed them, they told me repeatedly, we'd rather have an alert than nothing. We'd rather have an alert when when something is is kind of a low level event than no alert at all. And that's the set of choices they have made. So I want to talk a little bit more about that and what they've been able to do and how they've done it and set our experiences with that with that uh, alerting event in in bigger context. Because because again, as I say, there's a reason I share this because it draws our attention to, it can draw our scholarly attention to this complex set of, of, of kind of systems, um, ways that um, alerting, developing an earthquake early warning system is hard and doing alerts for people is hard. And then communicating about that earthquake early warning system such that um, people know what to do and how to use it and how to interpret these things that may happen um, and, and can set those experiences of warning in the context of warnings that'll keep happening and some of them will be exactly right and some of them won't and some of them people will respond to right and some of them won't. That is super, super, super challenging. Um, and I think that we need to pay attention to that. So um, maybe one quick question. Yeah. What was finally the, the reason for the siren alert for the 4.6? Was there... It was, it was just, um, it was sort of, um, it, it's, there were two errors. It's, um, and you can take a look at, at some of their, pu some publications to better understand this. There are two errors. One was mis uh, like register uh, a 
magnitude 4.6 that looked in its preliminary moments to this um, to the the algorithm to the stations like it was a magnitude five, mm -hmm. and then the magnitude five was because of some errors in some code, like treated like a magnitude six. Hmm. Yeah, because right, like they're supposed to issue preventative warnings. That is, and their definition of preventative warnings, the system's definition of preventative warnings was only um, was like send only some receivers should go off. Right. It wasn't there's a different message. It's only some receivers should go off. At this point in time, um, the NGO that's responsible for instrumentation and has been doing a lot of instrumentation advocacy didn't have control over the receivers, over the loudspeakers, those receivers. So there's also those that issue of like multiple channels and multiple responsibilities which I know we're supposed to, and I advocate for, like all of us who study earthquake early warning and communication talk about how we need like multiple channels and we need teammates and we need collaborations. But also that's going to happen. And I want to say like, yeah, it was an error. And when I talk to, when I talk to the folks at, at CIDES, I give them like, they've seen, they've read my book. They've gotten the article about this. They know. They're always like, why do you have to talk about the errors? <laughs> I mean, we talk about the errors, right? They're important, but like, they're like, why can't you talk more about the success? And I think that it's really important to put the errors that, like this in context and say, listen, this might not be ideal, but we have to be ready for things to come up that are going to go wrong because it's a, it's a system. It's going to go wrong. Like people are going to not know what they need to do and there are going to be problems with interchange and we can't. We can like try to design the perfect system, but like, as far as I know, now I am no engineer, but as far as I know, systems, systems do things sometimes. Technologies do things sometimes. And if we are not imagining that our systems will have errors, then we are not thinking about how that system is gonna be integrated into, into social use. We're thinking about a fantasy. And that's that's what I, what I say to um, the CDs team when they're like, why do you talk about the errors? I'm like, because we need to talk about like errors are normal like that's what happens and whatever they do great work um you will find that there are tons of papers out here specifically on how the system alerta sismica works that's those guys on the on the far side um that is on my i don't know i think it's going to be on your left they're publishing they're putting stuff out in english too um, and there are those of us also who are talking about, um, who are talking about the Sistema Alerta Sismica from a social science standpoint. But I want to point, I want to, I want to talk a little bit about that and, and the, the resources we have to talk to each other because, um, so that the, the series team, the team that's like, doing the Sistema Alerta Sismica, that's designing the stuff that says to me, why do you have to talk about the errors all the time? Um, they have, they're like amazing. They identify as an engineering team, even though they have some scientists on their team, they have some technicians, they have some lawyers, they have some designers. 
they are in charge of the stations and the systems. Um, they are in charge of the the, the maps that um, these these stations um, data get sent to. They maintain these 97 stations, which are all over Mexico, which is a whole other story. Um, you think that maintaining systems in weird parts of California might be weird. I know maybe some of you know about that. Um, imagine having to think about militias, having to, well, maybe some parts of California. I don't know. Um, imagine having to think about narcos. Imagine having to negotiate with that when you're going out to to do regular system maintenance. Um, they're in charge of, uh, yeah, developing the the kind of programs which they call the brain. Um, you know, the at, at um, the uh, their headquarters to think about um, to think about to analyze these um, these signals that come in from the field stations and then send them out push to different um, to different uh, users, including user communities and those. Um, those, those signal uh, boosters, might I say, like um, like Skyalert, like radio stations, like televisions. They um, had, what is it? They had 403 what they call cabinets, gabinetes, um, that is special dedicated signal receivers in like government buildings and some really wealthy schools that that this team is responsible for maintaining. Those are integrated into existing like alarm systems. Um, in 2015, that is like right before this like alert event that I talked about, they got those sirens. Those sirens are operated by Protección Civil. That's Mex like kind of like Mexico's FEMA, but they're all the time. It's not a great definition, but like Max is going to let it stand maybe. Okay. Yeah. <sighs> um, so they just started doing that. They have some like app repeaters like um, like Skyalert. That's what they're responsible for. There was a moment in um, I think it was 2009, 2010, when the government bought 88,000 little tiny radios. They were going to distribute to all the schools. Those were missing. Nobody knows. Nobody knows where those are. So that's what these folks at CDC do. They have been doing it since 1989 through organizational changes, through incredible funding instability, through changeable government support, through tweets like that cutie that I showed you, but also like more seriously, um, you know, distrust of the media and publics who might call it things that SASMEX, things like la alerta que no alerta, the alert that just doesn't alert us. They've been working on that. So we've got a couple of social science papers over here. There are those of us who are working on earthquake early warning. And that includes Elia Aronia, who's, um, who's a Mexican um, medical sociologist who's been working on um, comparative uh, use of early warning and no early warning in, in schools since the 90s. Um, Gerardo Suarez, has, who's a um geophysicist but he's done some work on um the like question of does anybody know how to use early warning um more recently there's there's kind of some of my work um Jaime Santos Reyes has been asking how useful are early warnings um Sandra Vaikulit 
who some of you may know at UNAM, has been starting to ask questions about um, population responses to earthquakes with or without early warnings. Um, but the thing is that cities, the people who are in charge of earthquake early warning in Mexico, they have little capacity to integrate these insights. They are engineers, right? They are responsible for the technology. Um, and while we can share insights like um, Jaime um, Santos Reyes recently uh, indicated that it, out of a sample of hmm, um, 2,400 folks in Mexico City, about 58% think that earthquake early warning always gives you 60 seconds. We all know why that isn't true, right? Like, because the earthquake might be all over the place. Because the stations, while they're, they're, there are only 97 stations, because Mexico City is, well, Mexico City can shake in response to quakes up to, I think, like 2,000 miles away. Um, it's, it's um, Earth motion has been detected in response to quakes um, with their, with their like, um, epicenters in California and in um, Guatemala, right? But, you know, that's like, sometimes you get a lot of time, sometimes you don't get time, right? 77%, um, however, of this population said they were very knowledgeable about earthquake early warning, right? Like we can we can tell people that. Sandra um, Baikulip can, can say that like, listen, um, it turns out sometimes we get an earthquake early warning, sometimes we don't get an earthquake early warning and we need to talk about preparing for both. I can say, you know, weird things like, hey, a, an earthquake early warning is an emergency for folks that they need to respond to, whether or not there's actually an earthquake attached to it. So sort of the same thing from a different perspective. But um, CDs, CDs, excuse me, they're the instrument people. And they're amazing instrument people, but they have little capacity to integrate some of this stuff. Some of these insights um, might be more appropriately integrated by civil protection in different cities, advocated um, for like by different emergency managers or politicians. Um, and this is why this matters, right? When I ask people who are advocating for earthquake early warning in Mexico, many of them tell me that they are happy. Many of them have told me, right? Keep telling me that they're happy to be involved with something that can save lives. You, you all heard that before, like when we talk about the use of earthquake early warning, when we talk about it in, in like very specific terminology, sometimes we're talking about like different algorithms, different kinds of um, different kinds of earthquakes, different kinds of analysis. But sometimes when we talk about the social use, sometimes we say, you know, this could save lives. This could save money. This could be useful in all sorts of ways. And. Mexico, this is a this is a memorial that I took a photo of after um, the 2017 quake that um, came out of Puebla and, and damaged um, La Contesa um, and uh, and Mexico City as well as Puebla. And, um, on this on the anniversary of the the day that the tragic 85 uh, quake happened. In Mexico, there's a lot of attention to quakes and there's a lot of like interest in helping people. But I think that we need to define our terms of success. 
So if an earthquake early, a successful earthquake early warning is about, well, like um, as, as the, you know, event in 2015 that I took you through um, is, is about like um, signaling a, for a, detecting a quake that is around the signaling threshold and, and sending a, characterizing it and sending a signal to that eventually gets um, taken up by other systems. Yeah, that was a successful event. Um, if an earthquake early warning is about being useful to different kinds of systems, including people, including like people who might respond in those seconds, then we need to think really hard about how social insights, social science insights maybe, might inform our decision making because and i say this as a uh, as a teacher of um engineers and scientists as well as a collaborator with engineering and engineers and scientists if the goal is to if success means saving lives then we have we have no metrics to we have no metrics to assess that and we don't necessarily have the support to even make that happen so that seems like a really terrible like you know, a really terrible goal if it's not doable. Um, if it can be doable, I think we should give our teams the resources they need to do that. And I think um, it's really exciting to me that folks like some of some of y'all on the line, like the work that um, Sarah McBride has been doing with her team, with her various teams, the work that folks in the social science working group at um, in um, in ShakeAlert have been doing to characterize earthquake early warning, to develop new languages for thinking about like what a failure or misfire might be, and to and to think about integration are like really really important. Um, I hope that we can also think about putting those in the context of not just like one event, like there's this one early warning, how did it go? But instead the way that people live with the knowledge that an earthquake could happen, they might get this much warning, they might not get this much warning, they might be good at responding, they might be bad at responding, they might be around people who are going to make them feel embarrassed about drop, cover, hold on, which is real. Like, that's the thing that happens. People feel weird about it. But we they keep accumulating those experiences. And I'm really skeptical of this idea of, like, the cry wolf effect just, like, happens. Like, oh, no, if it goes wrong once, and it's over forever. Like, that's really unnuanced, right? We, we can do better than that. But we do have to deal with the fact that people's experiences are cumulative. They are living with warnings. They're living with earthquakes. Sometimes those are going to be connected. Sometimes not. Sometimes they're going to be in the right place. Sometimes they're going to be in the wrong place. Anyway, so uh, I think that we have a lot of potential. Um, and I, I wrote this book. That's my book. That's the cover. Isn't it nice? I promised it would be nice. It's nice. Thank you. <laughs> um, and what, but one of the things I was thinking of as I wrote this book was not only about speaking to um, anthropologists like me, to speaking to our theory and our emerging work, but also like how it might be helpful for maybe people who are working on earthquake early warning or maybe even other systems. I know. Um, the, the folks that did you feel it are trying to collaborate across disciplines and experimenting with with what that can look like to have this serious account of how earthquake early warning emerged in Mexico and how 
it struggled and some of the things that they've seen and done, because I know that sometimes y'all get together and you talk about the math and that's really important, but um, you don't necessarily think like, hey, I got to sit down with um, with some of these people and ask about how kids became like this crucial like population that we talk about and we can alert and it got everybody interested or how um, this particular mayor was untrustworthy and and undercut funding and what kinds of responses might be had to that. So um, I put this book together. I don't know. It's coming out in April. Um, there's book discount. I was told to give you the book discount. Um, <laughs> but uh, I hope that we can keep talking about ways that our various disciplinary modes of engaging with early warning, with with data on earthquakes can can support each other. Right. Because I think that I mean, I, I hope it's not a surprise to anybody, but I think that like this tool has potential power. And also. Sometimes our resources are limited. Sometimes, uh, sometimes our, our, our goals are, are huge and we need to kind of take that seriously if we are to use this tool as, as well as we can. Um, so thank you all for being here. That was my, my spiel and I can't wait to hear what you have to say about all that. Thanks Elizabeth. Um, okay. oh, you go like that. <laughs> uh, let's see, do we have any questions online? Raise your hand or um, there's a question in the chat from Fabia Terra. Um, Fabia, I can read it out or you can unmute yourself and ask your question. It's a pretty loaded question. So <laughs> hi, Miss. nice to see you. Thank you so much for that presentation. Um, um so a lot of your comments really resonated with us working on ShakeAlert. Um, I think especially your bullet point about success. I think there's, a, for us, for me personally, I feel like there's a lot of misassumptions about between engineering and seismology, which has existed for decades, obviously. But there's also miscommunication mis um, and misconception conceptions about what the public wants to hear. So if you were to tell me, if you could tell me what your opinion is about a, the top three pieces of advice you could give scientists and engineers about delivering these warnings to the public in the context of early on, kind of shake alert is a little bit early on in the sense that we're just beginning to deliver alerts and developing our reputation. So if we wanted to develop the ideal reputation in California, Washington, and Oregon, what would be your pieces of advice? They may might be different for scientists versus engineers, but think about it. You can email me if, if you don't have <laughs> no, no, no. So I will, it's a I will put you, Thank you, it's Elizabeth. It's a really good question. It's a really good question. Um, I will say several, I will say two things. Um, I think that, that, thinking about trust is really important, you know, and we can't trust our systems always to work 100% of the time. So how can we um, create 
nonetheless be trustworthy as scientists. And I think that the team at ShakeAlert is doing awesome work thinking about post-event mes- post messaging, right? Like, why did it happen? What, um, like, how can we share that information? Um, how can we how can we tell people and like give people insight into the system we have such that like they can make use of it right and they can understand that you know maybe some i mean whatever maybe we live in a world where the system that that sh- the shake uh alert team builds will never have any problems ever 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 but like really okay mm-hmm. but if even if shake alert doesn't like what about bar- what about the those um tech users what about all those secondary things what about whatever the hell Google's doing? Sorry, but what about that? Um, we don't know. And people might not have the, so people might not have the, the knowledge to differentiate between those and what are they gonna do? So that that trust and that work y'all are already doing seems so important. Um, yeah, the other issue for scientists and engineers, right, is like your your question, Fabia, is so like revealing of the system we have. I think that there have been a lot of scientists and engineers who have been leading the charge on ShakeAlert, and I think that's awesome. But I think that scientists and engineers do not necessarily they're, they team up with other people, right? Like sci- scientists and engineers can do excellent work and also acknowledge that social scientists, the emergency managers, that community members even have either have insights or would value participating in decision making in like meaningful ways, not just like what color will it be, but like actually, you know, actually meaningful ways that in ways that can can support you all. I think that again, I'll say, yeah, as a as a collaborator and and teacher of scientists and engineers, if we are asking scientists and engineers to do everything, including things they are not trained to do including things that are not within their wheelhouse, including things they are not comfortable in doing. We need to think about that um, because we are not setting them up for success. We are setting them up for bearing the brunt of frustration. Um, I would also say like something like communication as our as our communication scholars tell us happens is a two-way street, right? And it means engagement and it means ongoing challenges and um luckily you have some really cool people on your team to to help with that so fabia that was exactly what you didn't want that was like my points were like (laughs) talk to other people besides me but i think that those are um those are those are the things that i have for you yeah so thanks elizabeth for those comments just to clarify um so you're I hear you saying, and correct me if I'm wrong, that it's important for, in order to um, effectively communicate to the to the public, scientists and engineers should work collaboratively with social science to define those measurements of success, to really deliver the warnings or the the information to the public in an effective way. And also potentially community members and advocates, right? Um, Ninia Campbell recently yeah. gave an awesome paper about how sometimes experts aren't the right people and to be involved, at least experts that we identify with. I think about. Um, sure. Yeah. Thanks, Elizabeth. I appreciate it. Sure.
I wish I could I could help more, but like y'all are doing great work. It's really hard also. Seems to be. I have a, a, a sort of follow on that and hopefully it's not too loaded, but in terms of what you've seen both in Mexico in your own research and then in just, you know, the constellation of things going on here, what uh, can you speak to what the sort of most effective or in, in your in sort of an ideal vision, who are the people who are, you know, implementing the, the choices about how warnings go out and where they go? You know, if it's yeah. if it and I, you know, I agree with you that the scientists and engineers working on the system are not necessarily the appropriate people to they need to inform yeah. what can we do, um, but how society responds, what sort of organizations, groups, agencies, you've talked about, there are private entities doing it, there are mm -hmm. NGOs in some cases, who is best poised to do this? Do we have such a thing here? Do we need to create one in the UN? I don't know. It's loaded. But. Who is, who is, I think like my, my answer is always going to be like, it depends. Let's do some research about it. Right. Because um, it's going to depend on who's interested and you know, we talk about um, and who is capable of being involved. Um, so there's not like a one size fits all answer. Unfortunately, it's like when we talk about um, community participation, like across the board, like our guidelines for community participation, engaged science and engineering or whatever is like um, is figure out who else is interested and find appropriate ways to uh, respectfully bring them in if possible, um, which is a lot harder than just like, hey, these three, these three churches and these three bowling teams, right? Like it's so <laughs> much harder. And um, it gives my students all sorts of headaches to, to hear this because they wanna do it right also all the time. Um, so perhaps another issue is that we, may not be able to do all the things that we wish we could do. Um, and that's another um, that's another issue we might we might think about is saying like, OK, are we developing tools for publics? Are we developing tools appropriate for technical users? And being very serious about that, because those mean different things, right? Um, yeah, I think that we have a lot of communities in um, in the U.S. West Coast who are really actively interested in earthquakes and earthquake risk mitigation. And I mean, I've been on some of those when it's knee herp calls. There's definitely some cranks, and there are and there are definitely some very smart, very cool people. And there are definitely some people who are all in between. And um, and so I think that as we figure out what we can I say we as like you you all me sometimes figure out what shake alert is going to look like um, figuring out how to manage those relationships is going to be really important and it's going to be hard work. Is that I don't know that if that answers your question. That's just like yep, yeah. it stinks. <laughs> yeah. I wish there was a shortcut that I knew about. Maybe Sarah McBride does, but I don't. Thoughts? 
Hey guys, well we're at eleven thirty now, so let's thank Beth again. People online want to. Oh, Sarah says is this my moment? Did Sarah, you... take it now if you can. <laughs> anyway, we can stop the recording, Susan. It's yeah, it's okay. Um, yeah, sorry. Um, I'm not really entirely sure how to wrap up everything that Beth said, um, but. Thank you so much, Beth, for a wonderful talk and um, all of your excellent, excellent work um, and being such a great partner, research partner for ShakeAlert. Um, I think Earthquake Early Warning is, you're right, it is, it's a really, really tricky system. Um, it is uh, the the amount of social science research we've done compared to what we have to do in the future is, is pretty intimidating, um, but thank goodness we have good researchers and colleagues like yourself to help us along the way. Thanks, team. Hey. Yes. <laughs> <laughs>